Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast brought to you by First National. I'm your host, Aaron Cameron, my co-host, Adam Pawatic. Uh, today, our guest is Sean Hildebrand, Senior Vice President at, from Urban Nation. Um, we're going to talk about uh, condo, the condo market, the apartment market, and just what's going on today, uh, specifically in, in Toronto, and we'll, we'll try to branch out to some other regions for those of you uh, listening outside of the center of the universe. Sean, thanks for coming. Thank you. So, so why don't we start, Sean? Just you know, let's just talk about yourself for first. How'd you get into this? Uh, I mean, really, you're, you're focused on research and data, and, and what's your background? And you know, let's start there. So, prior to joining Urbanation, um, I worked for several years with Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. My background is in economics, and I worked in the market analysis department, um, performing market risk analysis for housing markets across the GTA, um, helping with underwriting. Uh, applications for construction loan insurance on multifamily properties and uh, delivering market presentations and and, and writing forecast reports on the GTA housing market. And then about four years ago, um, I joined Urbanation uh, to lead that organization. Urbanation is a company focused traditionally on the condo apartment market in the greater Toronto area. So we have a uh, proprietary uh, research survey that goes out to developers and brokerages that represent uh, condo projects and asks them to report back to us on all market activity that occurs in new developments, new condo apartment developments across the greater Toronto region. Uh, we've been doing this for, for 35 years. Uh, we have unbelievable cooperation amongst the development community. Developers have no obligation to report their numbers to anybody. Um, so the fact that they um, uh, you know, without question, um, distribute their data to us every quarter, um, I think is a testament to the quality of the research that, that Urbanation puts out. We also track the rental market. We've been monitoring a rental market activity within the condo apartment sector for some time. These would be units that are leased out by investors. So we're able to track through the MLS system the number of units in each building that are being rented out. Um, the number of rentals versus the number of listings, the days on market. And what's been very interesting for new rental developers is what the rents are per square foot that are actually being achieved in these buildings. Um, we also started tracking the purpose-built market not too long ago. So there hasn't been a lot of new purpose-built rental developed in the GTA over the past 10 years. But within those buildings, it's a stock of about seven, 8,000 units. We started surveying them every quarter for their vacancy rates and their rents to try to figure out, you know, within the newer stock of purpose-built, what's going on here? And um, um, more particularly within those projects that uh, come for, come up for occupancy that have been under construction, how quickly are they getting absorbed? What sort of rents are they getting and, 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 and where are they located? And we've been looking at this in conjunction with new purpose-built rental that is currently under construction and also proposed for development. So we, we've really seen an explosion off of a, I mean, to be honest, off of a low base, but we've seen a lot of interest in purpose-built rental development to uh, the point where we're tracking about 20,000 units in the proposed inventory right now. And that has doubled over the past, uh, just over the past year. So in addition to this research that we compile um, and, and upload into our uh, database, uh, we, can, we, we, we produce quarterly reports, so analysis of what's going on in the marketplace. 
and uh, prepare market feasibility studies for developers. So those that have uh, a development site and they're looking to figure out, you know, what's the best use, what's the highest value for the project, what's the best to build in terms of suite mix and size, and how quickly they could sell the units if they brought into the market. We, we, we produce very in-depth market studies for developers um, on a site-specific basis as well. So I, I guess that's pr- pretty much the, the coverage of GTA uh, housing market. And then on the commercial side, we, we, we recently acquired a company called The Marsh Report earlier this year. The Marsh Report is a, it traditionally, I guess, has been a, a very similar company to Urbanation in terms of both size and coverage, but they've been exclusively focused on the commercial market. So they report um, on all property transactions um, for all types of land and all types of buildings and research every sale over $2 million. So we've been able to take that data and uh, sort of combine it with the urbanation data on the residential side to create really a very powerful database on when, what's going on across the GTA. Interesting. That Marsh report for anybody that, that's... Um that, that works in commercial real estate, you've had these huge books delivered to you every year and they're, they're, they're awesome in, in, in information, but not very sortable or searchable in any form or fashion. So when we found out that, that you guys had acquired them, we were excited because we knew that it, the, the access to the data and the ability to scrutinize and play with the data was going to get, get much stronger. The books are still there. We still oh, publish good. the books. Okay, okay, fair enough. They're smaller, for though. The, for the older guys out there that still like, you know, putting their, their thimble on and flipping through it, That's right? That's right. Well, the, uh, the specific report that we're talking about today is the GTA Q3 market update. And I actually met Sean just uh, just recently at the Urbanation event where they it reviewed all the uh, the numbers. Uh, the, the venue was actually pretty amazing. It was a downtown old waterworks building, candle lit with lights everywhere. Definitely not your standard, you know, gray box event that you go to for a real estate event. So that was the first thing that impressed me. And the second one was the numbers just, uh, you know, contravened all logical wisdom or everything that people have been talking about, you know, from, you know, 18 months ago, but the condo market being overbuilt, you know, my jocks kind of hit the floor. And so that's why I asked uh, Sean. Well, to let's be clear. Him. There's a bubble, right? Like the, the, the bubble's about to burst. Is that right, Sean? I don't think you hear too much about that anymore. Not anymore. No, no, no. It's, it's just the, the front page of sensationalized newspapers still like to think that there might be, but it, we'll dig into the numbers now. And it's, it's quite amazing what, what you guys have produced. And, and just as far as that you're, you're, you're seeing that there's a ton of demand still and that the supply is still not keeping up with, with the demand for both sounds like the condo and the apartment on the apartment side as well. Yeah. It's been remarkable to see the level of growth that we've seen so far in 2016 and 2015 was, was a remarkable year as well. So the fact that we've been able to expand so much off a very strong base already it's just that more impressive. Um, it's gotten to a point where supply uh, just can't keep up with the level of demand in the condo market, which is really contrary to what most people think of when they when they think of the condo market. They think of it as being oversupplied, but in fact, the numbers that we show are that um, it is undersupplied uh, remarkably. We saw sales in the new condo apartment market rise by over thirty percent so far this year. And the level of new product coming into the marketplace through new launches hasn't really changed over the past three years. So it's created this very large gap between demand and new supply to the point where unsold inventory and development is plummeting. It's at its lowest level in uh, nearly 10 years. Um, I believe, is it a five-month supply currently? Is that the... Yeah, when you, when, you, yeah. when you track it against actual demand levels, you're looking at five months of supply. And five months of supply... Um, is about half of what a normal market should be for new condos. If you're looking at market conditions as being balanced, you're usually seeing about 10 months of inventory. And that's really been the average, I would say, over the past 10 years. 
So the fact that we've dropped to five months just speaks to how little inventory there is right now in new condo projects that are in development. Um, amongst all of the 100,000 units that are in development right now, so across the pre-construction, under construction, and occupying phases, they're collectively 90% pre-sold. Hmm. Even the projects that are in pre-construction that haven't even broken ground are 80% pre-sold. So there is a lot of pressure on inventory in the marketplace. And um, the new projects that are opening up um, are doing very well. They're selling very quickly for, at increasingly higher prices. And we've known that this ability to, um, uh, to bring in new projects and perform very well has been there for a while because we've been seeing some signals from the resale market actually for some time. The resale market really started to strengthen uh, towards the second part of last year and, and heated up even more so this year to the point where resale condos are, are in a strong seller's market. Um, there really isn't much inventory out there for sale. The sales to listings ratio that we track is like 20 basis points higher than what would be considered to be a balanced market. Price growth uh, in the double digits in the third quarter of 2016. Average resale prices for condos are up 12% year over year on a per square foot basis. And we're seeing such broad-based demand for condos right now. So traditionally, it's been a market driven by first-time buyers and investors. And now you're starting to see that diversify where couples are starting to buy condos, families in some cases, downsizers. And so they're looking for a variety of different types of condominiums, whereas in the past, you know, we were focusing more on smaller units, studios, and small one-bedrooms. Now we're seeing a burgeoning market for two-bedroom units and more expensive product that's sort of priced above $500,000 and actually moving up upwards of a million dollars. And then on top of that, you've got a luxury segment of the marketplace that's been seeing remarkable growth as well. So some of the high-end buildings around Toronto are seeing very strong absorptions as well, not only on the, on the resale side, but on the rental side as well. Um, so really overall strength in the marketplace and I, I would say unexpected strength. Like nobody really expected 2016 to be a year of double-digit price Absolutely. growth in no, the condo market. Reading, reading through this, this report, which we will put on, on our website, commercialrealestatepodcast.com, for those of you that, that want to grab it and, and digest it. Um, let's start with the supply side. You know, two, three years ago, you'd drive in through through Toronto, come along the Gardener, and you'd just be baffled, you know, by the number of cranes you'd see across the the, the horizon, and 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 I think that was driving part of the, the hysteria that you know that we can't we can't absorb this many units, and the market's gotten out of control, and you know, there's no way that these prices can hold, and. You know, I think now you drive across, and it seems more reasonable. It's not just you know, our towers seem to be popping up everywhere. But let's talk about why that supply is, is down a little bit. I mean, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't see, and you can speak to it. The where are we with the number of starts, the number of units coming on? Is it is it lower than it has been in the past, and why is that? Yeah, the starts levels are down. Um, they're probably going to start to increase because there is a lot of pre-construction inventory that's highly absorbed. But certainly, the pace of new development has slowed down, as you say. Um, part of it is because. There isn't as much opportunity in this city for these multi-phase tower developments that we saw over the previous decade. You know, like the, the introduction of City Place or Liberty Village. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough land available to build at that scale anymore. So developers are starting to shift gears and look more towards mid-rise sites, develop along the avenues. But obviously, they're 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 coming up against a lot of opposition, and it's a challenging proposition to in- introduce that type of supply into a marketplace uh, that's actually starting to lean against it to some degree. So, you know, that, the approval processes... What do you uh, mean by the market leaning against the, uh, the, the development? 
Well, I, th I think it's tough to get to get the approvals, to get the density in order to make the numbers work for these types of mid-rise developments. They're very sensitive to the economics. Mm -hmm. Land prices, as we know, in, in the city of Toronto, really no matter where they are, are extremely high. And so to build a, a mid-rise building and be able to sell at an achievable price that makes the economics work for a developer can be can be. Do you think part of that is just they're moving into neighborhoods that you know typically historically haven't had development in it? So you you have you have neighborhoods and people that live there that are a little bit more opposed to it, putting more pressure on their on their councilors to to object to the density, to object to to the to the, the, the building higher, more floors, etc. A hundred percent. That that happens all the time. You hear about it all the time. Uh, pushback from local residents is you know, listing I, those two. I mean that that Liberty Village area and others that have are now developed. There wasn't really any existing population in those neighborhoods. Right, so there probably wasn't nearly as much opposition or, or you know, uh, groundswell, you know, pre preventing those densities to be to be approved by the city. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, you know, this opposition can be a good thing. It challenges developers to introduce more effective design. Um, it, it helps with the built landscape, so we're not building, you know, uniform towers everywhere in the city. You know, nobody wants to see a very bland-looking skyline and um, you know, homogeneous neighborhoods across the city of Toronto. But on the other hand, as we're seeing in the data, we just can't bring enough supply into this marketplace to satisfy demand. And if you look at what's happening in the single family home market, it's, it's, it's even more dire. There's no listings uh, for resale activity. We're not building very many single family homes anymore. And those that we are building are located a good hour's drive outside mm -hmm. of the city. So, you know, if, if, if a household wants to move into an area like Leslieville or High Park or Roncesvalles, it's 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 you know they're they're looking at over a million dollars to get a semi-detached home at this yeah. at this price. Uh, you know the ability to bring in a different type of supply that's conducive to that sort of demand and facilitates the continued inflow of families into these neighborhoods, which is ultimately good because as more people move in, it's going to introduce more commercial development and the neighborhoods are going to continue to gentrify and grow. But it's it's not an it's not an easy it's easier said than done I suppose because sure. the other yeah. part of the equation of course is you know infrastructure and its ability to withstand all these new residents and there has been a you know discernible lag in infrastructure upgrades to support all these people even though theoretically development charges should be uh, you know, contributing towards that yeah I mean on the surface the solution is add more density but it, again you know it's putting even more pressure on infrastructure. For whatever reason, um, we didn't plan ahead. Population growth in the city has exploded, and now it's getting to a point where planners and, and those that are working for the city are starting to push back against densities, saying, you know, we're at our capacity, let's bring this out in a more staged fashion. But the market's saying price growth is going to continue to grow rapidly if we don't do something about the supply side. Well, as somebody um, speaking with a gentleman this morning, he was talking about one of the councillors called for a one-year ban on all new tall tower development to give the city time to catch up and figure out a strategy on how to, uh, you know, adapt to this rapidly growing population. Uh, it, would, it, would, it would cause severe consequences for the rental market. Most of those tall towers have a 50% share of their units going directly into the rental market. And the rental market is severely undersupplied. If we cut back on tall tower development growth in the city, rents would skyrocket. It would be a very, very dire situation. Uh, we're already seeing condo rents. So this is this is the newer product that, we're, that we've been building and investors have been adding into the marketplace. Uh, in the third quarter, they, they jumped by 10% year over year. The average condo in the city of Toronto leases for over $2,000 a month. Mm -hmm. I thought um, it was $3.10 per square foot now. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, um, 
it's making the economics for development work a little bit better. So developers would typically target at least $3 a square foot in order to uh, be able to move forward with a new development project uh, for a rental development project. It was always sort of expected that we'd get there someday, but it wasn't expected that we'd get there that soon. And um, it's become a benchmark level. And uh, we're actually seeing some upper end projects get uh, closer to $4 a square foot. Some of the new some of the new buildings that came to completion in the third quarter were getting in the high three, so 380 a foot or so. So for the investor who bought into these units, it's great. The economics, the yields are very high. Um, and it's giving a signal to, to developers that, yeah, these rents are achievable. Um, I can come in and introduce a different type of supply that complements um, the type of units that are being leased out through the condo market, whether it be introducing larger suites, adding a different selection of amenities, um, uh, and whatever the case may be. But you know, definitely we're hearing more about interest in bringing in new rental supply, dedicated rental supply. And um, I think that some of the cutback that we've seen in condo development growth is going to help to support that. You know, in the future, we're not going to be seeing as many new condos come to completion. Construction volumes are eventually going to come down because there hasn't been as, as many new sites being purchased. Developers haven't been as active in the core as they once were. Well, the low-hanging fruit's been taken now. There isn't. There aren't parking lots all over downtown Toronto that are that are ripe for the picking like there has been, you know, in previous previous decades. I remember reading about the intersection of Spadina and Adelaide. In uh, I guess it would have been probably 1997 was 25% of the land there was surface parking lots. Now you'd be hard pressed to find uh, you know any in the area. Yeah, and, and and those that are owning the land that do have land that's that's ripe for for high rise development um, are holding on to it. They're they're you know for any any new site that comes up for um, for purchase. Um, a very good example is um, the corner of. Um, Dufferin and Bloor, mm. huge site there. It's had so many bids on it. It's the last big development site in, in the city. And, and you know, in other cases, the developer, the, the owners are just holding on. They recognize that the value of their property is rising 20% year over year just by sitting on it, not doing anything. So they're just taking a, a wait and see approach. They, you know, they think if they, if they don't sell right now, um, you know, the value, of, they're just going to continue to make millions of dollars just by sitting on it. And obviously, that's that's to the um, discouragement of the of the of the um, developers who are recognizing that this is the prime opportunity in the marketplace to introduce new supply. The the market is is ripe for it. Prices are growing, inventories are down, but it's it's a it's a challenge to get things not only purchased but approved and brought to the marketplace in a timely fashion. Let's uh, jump to the demand side. I mean, what is it in your research that, that you think is driving this demand and, and, and creating this, this, this need for new stock and, and existing stock? Well, as, as, we, as we sort of just mentioned, um, it is uh, a pretty diverse uh, composition of demand today versus what it was even just five years ago. The new projects that are coming into the marketplace now are coming in with a more balanced unit type mix. Mm -hmm. In the past, you would see new condominiums launch with 70% of their units being represented by studios or, or small one-bedrooms. And now you're seeing 40 to 50% of those units um, taken up by two-bedroom and larger suites. Which is sim likely just simply those that used to live in the bachelor and small studio, you know, now living with their girlfriend or married and thinking about having a child and d not wanting to leave the downtown core, so looking to upgrade to a larger, a larger suite. Yeah, for the first time, we're seeing huge move-up demand within the condo market because of the barrier to entry into the single-family home market. 
and the changing demographics. In the past 10 years, we've seen remarkable growth in population between the ages of 25 and 34. Now those millennials, at least the earlier millennials, are starting to age. They're getting married uh, and they require more space. A lot of them have become very used to living in the city. Um, they've been living in smaller condos and they like the city lifestyle. I'm sure they would love to buy a single family home in a neighborhood like High Park or, or Leslieville or Riverdale, but it's becoming so expensive that they're settling on larger condominiums, which aren't cheap by any standards. Mm -hmm. um, like A lot of these units are selling for well over $600,000 but um, they're in very high demand. In fact, when we look at, when we sliced and diced the resale data, we found that the strongest area of growth so far this year in the condo market was between the price segment of $600,000 and a million dollars, almost doubling in, in, in Which volume. Which makes sense, right? You bought your $400,000 condo five years ago, you know, and now you're trading up, hopefully saved a little bit, paid down your principal. But in the mm -hmm. million dollar range for a home you do have options in the city it's just they won't be they won't be downtown so it's simply a factor of wanting to be downtown not deal with uh traffic not deal with being in the suburbs the urban lifestyle so you know like i know I, I personally struggled with moving to the suburbs although i've adapted nicely uh since then mm -hmm. but it's uh the whole concept of living in you know a high rise from you know cradle to grave is definitely new to toronto but cities like manhattan have had that for decades and people seem to thrive in that environment you talk to some people in the city and they're horrified at the concept. Well, there's, you know, cities of millions of people that are effectively doing that. And it, you know, it's a, it's a lifestyle issue more than, more than anything else. Well, while we're on demand, do you want to talk about um, foreign investment and what, what uh, component or what part that's playing in this demand, in, in, the, in this appreciation of the prices? Yeah, it's, it's a very important topic and obviously very timely with um, the latest uh, introduction of a foreign buyer's tax out in, out in B.C., so we knew that there was a lot of attention um, on the Toronto market. So the government was looking closely at not only what was happening in BC after the tax was implemented, but trying to gather more data on the foreign buyer's share within the Toronto condo market and the housing market in general across the GTA. So we felt we were best positioned in the marketplace to be able to gather um, foreign buyer data as it relates to new condos. So as we were surveying our, um, our, our contacts in the development industry um, over the course of the third quarter, we added uh, a new question, I would say, to the survey and asked them to report back to us on the percentage of all the units that they've sold in their developments that are, that are active today that were purchased by foreign buyers, so those with a, a permanent residence outside of Canada, as well as domestic investors, so those that are local um, to Canada but don't intend on self-occupying their units. They're using them for, for investment purposes. So we got about a 25% response rate as you weighted against sales, which was a fairly decent response rate for our first time uh, implementing the survey. And um, we weighted the sales uh, against the responses and ended up with a foreign buyer share that worked out to about 5% across the new condo market. The results ranged anywhere from 0% to 25%. Um, Did that surprise you? Did you think it would be higher? No. And in fact, um, you know, we've been talking to developers and those in the industry for some years about what their foreign buyers share. And they always kind of came back at a number that was somewhere around 5 maybe 10%, depending on where the project was located. I think uh, CMAC also came in with that number as a... I don't think they had a lot of hard data, but at least they suspected that was the percentage a couple of years ago. Yeah, they, they surveyed, uh, I believe, condo boards, uh, property managers to try to get at, at that estimate. And they came up, like you said, at a very similar estimate. Any sense how that compares to Vancouver, You know, a market that, that certainly seems a bit more uh, foreign investment specific? 
Well, I think the, sh- the, 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 the shares that came out of their research, which was across the whole greater Vancouver area, and I don't think it was specific to any sort of housing type, before the tax was implemented, I think they did the survey once and then implemented the tax mm-hmm. rate after, um, I think their share came in at 10%. So, so du- double what you what you're seeing in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Now I don't know what the share is amongst single family homes. It could be higher. I'm not quite sure. You certainly do hear reports from realtors saying that a lot of the bidding wars that are being won these days in at least central locations in Toronto for single family homes are being won by foreign purchasers. So whatever their share is, I have no doubt that they're having an influence on the 20% year over year price growth that we're seeing for detached properties in the GTA. But as it relates to the new condo market, I don't think they're really having in any impact. I do think that we're probably undercounting the true presence of foreign buyers. I don't think that 5% really reflects the true reality. Certainly, some foreign buyers have uh, dual identification or they have a local relative that they can use to purchase units. But those numbers would be captured in that 52% share as well. So, you know, whatever the case is, um, a lot of condo investors in general are new immigrants and a lot of the money that they've made to invest in new condos was made overseas so the issue is foreign wealth it's not really the number of foreign buyers and there's no real way of tracking that down so i think i think the the message is that foreign buyers and 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 more importantly domestic investors do play a role in the marketplace and if we were to implement a foreign buyers tax in toronto it really wouldn't add much in terms of government revenue because that 5% share is, 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 is not really much when you weigh it against the number of sales that happen in Toronto every year. And what it would do is, is, is what it's doing in Vancouver. It's causing a lot of wait and see and uh, sales levels are plummeting. Prices have held up okay so far, but they're bound to fall. And a similar sort of situation would probably take hold in Toronto where condo investors would just simply hold off on buying as there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. And since they represent half of all activity, that's going to directly restrict housing supply. So without investors buying units, we don't build condos, we don't deliver rental units, and market conditions become even more tight than they are today. So, um, with, with very little benefit. With very little benefit, yeah. So I, I think actually um, a better policy move to consider is what they in- introduced in Vancouver earlier in the year. So in February, they added in a, uh, a tax on homes uh, valued over $2 million. So even after that tax came into effect, the market was already starting to slow down before the buyer's tax, foreign buyer's tax was implemented. Something like that might be considered for Toronto because a lot of the price pressure that we see in the single family home market is coming from the top end. So that might- In the most desirable location. In the most desirable location. So maybe cooling off that segment of the marketplace might uh, might 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 be a good thing, but I think we do have to wait a little while. These most recent mortgage rule changes do still have to shake out, and one change that was particularly important was um, the el- the elimination of uh, of mortgage insurance for um, homes that are valued valued over a million dollars. Yeah. Right, so um, we'll we'll see how that plays out, but certainly the um, the higher qualification rules are going to have some impact on the condo Absolutely. market. Um, I have no doubt that condo resale activity is going to slow down. We've done some analysis on this. So the previous rounds of mortgage rule changes, which were mostly related to increasing maximum amortizations, they tended to increase costs uh, for condo buyers by anywhere from 10 to 15 percent, given the actual change. And after those changes came into effect, 
what we saw was sales levels declining from anywhere from 15 to 25%, depending on, 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 on the time of, uh, of implementation. You can also argue that some of those declines were softened by further decreases in interest rates as they were sort of being rolled out. Now, obviously, you know, we don't have much luxury in, in, in terms of decreasing interest rates. And in fact, we have a higher um, implied cost to this new round of mortgage rule changes. So we, we crunched some numbers. And what we found was for the average person buying the average price condo, their required income is going to rise from $73,000 today, or sorry, prior to the mortgage rule changes, to $86,000. So it's like a 17% overnight increase. Needed needed to be approved for the average condo at the thirty nine percent GDS right. ratio. So um, this is this is factoring in a ten percent down payment. Um, so you know there's certain ways to sort of help help reduce that cost burden. Obviously by um, substituting to lower priced product or or moving to a lower priced area or perhaps getting additional funds as a down payment to avoid mortgage insurance. Uh, so help from parents or, or waiting a little bit longer. But uh, certainly, these changes are going to have some impact on resale activity. We expect sales uh, for condos to, uh, at least on the resale side, to decline by about 10, 15% over the next six to 12 months. So, based on how tight the market is right now, we don't think it's going to have really a huge impact on prices. I think it'll slow price growth. So we're at 12% growth. We'll probably be moving, you know, 5%, 4%, something which is, which like is that. Which is healthier, quite so frankly. It, yeah, we're basically going to be moving the market into a state of balance rather than uh, the conditions that we see today. Would, now, it, uh, would any of the changes push potential mortgage purchasers into the category of renters and increase demand on uh, the rental supply? Yeah, so I, I think that's that's a, that's a very important point. It's already been happening. So as housing prices have been rising quickly in Toronto, even before these mortgage rule changes came into effect, you know there was less turnover for rental units. People were staying in their rental properties for longer periods of time. So there was less supply and there was more demand filtering in from people who would otherwise probably have been able to buy a home and they had the funds to do so. So there's been a lot of pressure on, 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 on rents to rise because these people with higher incomes are coming into the market and renting and there's not enough turnover happening. So it's gotten to a point where condo rents are rising by close to double digits. And we were sort of relying on the rental market to be that one area to maintain a level of affordability for the, for the GTA mm. housing market. Because for a good period between 2013 and 2015, rents flattened out. Yep. Condo supply was strong enough to maintain rents at where they were. And that was a great thing for a housing market that was seeing housing prices rocket, skyrocket. Now there's no there's no there's no um, there's no relief anywhere. Well, and the one variable that kind of is implied throughout all of this is income levels, which are, have not been increasing at the same level of any of these other variables you've been talking about. Well, they they haven't been increasing by the same extent. But to be fair, unless, um, unless you work in real estate, and then uh, it might have given all the price increases. <laughs> <laughs> well, real estate has been a huge driver of the local economy. Um, the Toronto uh, GTA economy has seen you know, 50,000 new jobs added this year on top of 80,000 jobs that were added last year. It has been one of the most steady and strongest growing economies in the whole country. And that is bringing in a lot of new immigration, skilled immigration um, with higher incomes than they have in the past. And the rental product is uh, is traditionally old. The purpose-built rental stock was built in the 1950s and the 1960s. It's, it's lower rent stock. And 
these higher income individuals, working professionals living downtown are increasingly looking to the condo market. And the rental pool has been strong enough to satisfy that demand. And um, interestingly, as we've seen completions sort of slow down, it's had the effect of really tightening up rental market conditions to the point where, like I said, rents are growing quite rapidly. Are, are you seeing a transition then from, from the developers to, to move towards purpose-built apartments? Yeah, we have. It, this is something that's been slowly taking shape over the past three years. Initially, it started in 2013 when the new condo market slowed down. Um, it was getting harder for developers to launch a new project after the frenzy of activity that was happening between 2010 and 2012. So they started looking more at rental as a, as a new proposition. And a lot of that was was a bit of a fad. As the condo market came back, a lot of those developers switched back to uh, putting their sites towards condo as opposed to rental. But we're seeing a lot of, I would say, institutional money, uh, big financial backing towards rental development now in the GTA to the point where um, we're at a 30-year high in terms of the number of units under construction. There's about 6,000 units um, underway right now in the GTA. It's not a very big level if you compare it against condo construction, which is 50,000 units, but it is uh, coming off of an extremely low base, and we are starting to see some growth. But more interestingly, we're tracking about 20,000 units of proposed purpose-built rental inventory across the GTA right now. And if we looked at that inventory a year ago, it was only 10,000 units. So it's, it's, it's doubled in 12 months. Um, a lot of it is focused in the city of Toronto. But again, typically larger developers, REITs, pension funds, conglomerates of develop, development companies, and those with a track record of developing rental. And what do, you, what do you think their main motivation is? Why has it gone from basically negligible to 20,000 proposed units? But what's the big economic factor that you think? Well, a lot of it is the search for yield. Right, we're in such a low yield environment right now that uh, even though uh, rental yields aren't extremely high, they're higher than the alternative. And the yield on a on a on a construction project can be higher than, of course, is buying stabilized. Well, this is part of the reason we've seen uh, per unit prices for old rental stock rise really quickly. So the, the the economics of switching from buying existing assets to building new is is, is starting to happen, but certainly the growth in rents that we've seen um, exhibited by what's happening in the condo market has certainly helped. Low interest rates, fit more favorable tax treatment, I suppose, as um, rental rental projects will be or are, are being taxed and have been taxed at uh, residential property tax rates as opposed to commercial mill rates. And just, I think, a lot of confidence in low structural vacancy rates for rental properties and very high and sustainable rates of, of renter household formation in the GTA going forward. In terms of the, the cash flows as well, it's a different proposition. If you're building a condo, you get your big, big payday when you eventually sell your units, whereas an apartment, you know, that's a, that's a long-term hold. So you mentioned pension funds earlier, so of course they're interested in those kind of cash flows. They want steady income. For yeah, and they're looking at a 50, 50, really a 30, 50-year yeah. horizon where they can, they can realize those yields over that period, which I, I think some of the developers don't have that same kind of uh, luxury to be thinking that that long term. That's right. Yeah, get paid and get on to the next project. It's uh, the traditional cowboy style. Even the the, the larger uh, developers can sometimes uh, you know carry on that way. And the market is is very open for them to to bring a new product in as condos. Right, the absorption rates that we're seeing on anything that's launching now is so high. It, when a new project opens up, a lot of them in the city are selling 70, 80% plus of their units in the first month of opening. That's insane. And it's been in the news as well. There's been um, videos of people camped out overnight for some of the really 
really desirable projects. They got to get a unit in there and they'll camp out overnight, which is crazy and unthinkable when, you know, three years ago, everybody's concerned about this big lumpy uh, uh, mass of condos that had to get digested by the market. And here we are, we're on the other side of it now and they got absorbed. And, and, the, and the price per foot just keeps rising. A few years ago, it, you know, you would only find $1,000 a square foot in terms of condo price in Yorkville. Now you're seeing it, you know, along the Young corridor, and new projects that are opening up off of Young are getting, you know, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a square foot. And you know, when when you when you sort of translate it against the average unit size, and you work it work it out to the end selling price, it still looks pretty favorable when you compare it against a single family home in the city. So you know, a lot of that upward pull on the condo market is because of what's been happening in terms of single family home prices. And I think one of the biggest factors for the marketplace this year has been the substitution effect, substitution of buyers away from ground-oriented housing towards high-rise living. Do you want to talk about uh, affordable housing? I, I don't think I saw anything in it on, on, in your, um, your your slides, but it certainly has an impact, certainly has an impact on, on the condo market. Do you have, do you have any, any feel for, for how that, that, I mean, it's, it seems to be a hot topic these days amongst amongst the city, city, um, city employees, and, and I know the developers are constantly working with them to, to come to a, a stable, you know, a stable level of affordability. Does that, how do, you, do you have any sense of how that impact? Do you have any comments on, on what that does to the market? We don't actually track, um, you know, affordable housing. And, and, and so I don't have a lot of numbers to share on that, unfortunately. You know, as it relates to the data that we do collect, sort of the market's way of handling affordable housing has been by building smaller units, right? Yeah. Increasingly, we see that the average size of condo units being built has been on a steady downward trend. We are starting to see, you know, uh, more two bedrooms and whatnot, but certainly they are compact and that average size does tend to decline. And the demand for these units has been exceptionally high. So a studio unit that's 400 square feet or less gets rented out in like two days. So the renter is willing to sacrifice more and more on space to save on cost. That 400 square foot unit may rent for $1,200 a month. Whereas if they're going to rent a one bedroom unit, you know, they may be paying 1850 or even upwards of that. So, you know, this, this introduction of what they call the micro unit has actually served a pretty important purpose mm-hmm. in, 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 in the sense of actually creating some supply that is relatively affordable if you benchmark it against what the average is out there. I think, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, actually, at the apartment conference, which I believe is back in September, they ranked or they, they polled tenants and they ranked their you know their priority list for their apartments and size came in at I think number four which boggled my mind because it, you know for me I want space and is you know, my personal interpretation of of living but I was shocked to see that come in fourth you know below like amenities and other things that uh, normally wouldn't rank that high in my mind you know one thing that's interesting is that the suites are becoming much more efficiently designed so what feels like a 800 square foot unit in an 800 square foot unit in an older building is actually closer to 650 square feet today because they are being designed in a much more livable way but certainly when you look at um, purpose-built rental development and the new projects that are that are coming out today you are seeing a larger average unit size than you would be with the condo sector so they certainly recognize that um, there is exceptionally low vacancy for two-bedroom apartments in the city of Toronto. There's a, there's, a, there's a void of these types of units, particularly with a newer product. And again, not only within the condo market is there move-up buying demand, but within the rental market as well, there's move-up demand. So those that have been renting smaller units, 
getting married, um, wanting to, to live in a two-bedroom unit, and they're very happy renting. There is a, I think, very strong rate of growth in longer-term renters than there has been in the past. So that transition from renting and moving into the ownership market has, has been delayed, and more people are choosing to rent than own than ever before. I, I certainly think that homeownership rates have peaked, and, and, and they're probably going to level out or come down a bit. And really, that speaks to a higher propensity um, to rent in the city. So what we're seeing within um, the purpose-built rental sector is a lot of attention to suite design, making the suites feel larger than they actually are, with the uh, expectation that there's going to be less turnover as a result, right? You're going to have less turnover in your building. You're going to introduce amenities and common space that help to create a sense of community so people know each other in the building and they're much more likely to stay put as opposed to quickly move in and out of smaller units as, as you typically do see within the condo market. Interesting. I, I think we're running out of time, Sean. This has been um, really, really interesting. You know, I think it, it contravenes, I think, what still the common thought process out there in just general. I mean, maybe not in the real estate, you know, experts, but I think just, just in general, people still feel like, you know, there's no way that these condos can keep being built and we can keep absorbing those rates. And it's just just fascinating to me that it seems like it's we're just stabilizing there's there's no no real indication there's any negative trends on on the horizon no i mean i we're definitely going to be watching the resale side closely as these as these uh mortgage mortgage rule changes come into effect i mean it, it may not happen for a few months depending on how many people were pre-qualified but we're coming off of such a strong base right even if bringing demand down 10 15 percent and price growth you know chopping it in half that's still a very healthy market um we're, we're, we're going to be seeing condo supply strong for the next few years. Um, we're forecasting completions above 20,000 units a year right through to 2019. I think it's, it's crucial that demand remains strong um, when you're up against this level of supply. And I think that it has shown the proven ability to do that. And I, I, I don't see a lot of risk in the marketplace. Um, I think the only thing that would really cause uh, true oversupply of condominiums is if there was a, a, a some sort of a shock to the economy where demand outright fell because of a lack of household formation, a deterioration in the job market, um, you know, a big drop in immigration, which has been rising mm-hmm. in, 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 in and Toronto continue recently, to. and yeah. will continue to. Yeah. Um, outside of that, I, I don't think that the level of construction that we're seeing is enough in and of itself to create a correction in the condo market. Almost sounds like we need more. Interesting. In some regards, yeah. yeah. Excuse me, do you want to, uh, let's jump to best and worst day in real estate, Sean. That's something we always do with our guests just to uh, get a sense of what their career has been like. And, and you know, I know it, what's curious and Adam made this comment earlier is that we typically have guys that are in here that are more transaction based in their careers. So if we ask this question is typically, well, the best day was the day that the biggest deal closed and the worst day was the day that the worst, the biggest deal, you know, failed. What um, for you, a little bit different, you know, employment history. So what, what's your best and worst day in real estate? Yeah, I'm, I'm not involved in the trenches, so I don't uh, I don't see those types of ups and downs as much, I guess, as, as someone who's in the, in the brokerage industry or even somebody who's who's launching development projects because I'm sort of standing back and looking at the market from 30,000 feet and, and really just uh, sitting from the comfort of my desk and looking at the numbers. Yeah. But I, I, I do have uh, one story that sort of comes to mind, and, and it comes to mind because um, it happened actually seven years ago today, and it was on my daughter's birthday. So... Um, Is she a listener? You can say happy birthday to her. <laughs> happy birthday, Violet. <laughs> uh, 
So I was, uh, I, was, I was working with CMHC at the time, and uh, we had a big Housing Outlook conference scheduled. Um, obviously knew this was coming up, but also knew that the delivery date for, for my daughter was coming due as well. And uh, we had 4,000 guests, a lot of senior banking executives coming to this event, and I was you know, one of the keynote speakers. As it happened, my daughter was born three hours before the event, um, in the middle of the night. So I was obviously there for the birth and, and, and there afterwards, and then had to quickly rush over to the event and, and deliver my presentation to, to 400 plus people and try to look smart on no sleep oh, You were whatsoever. probably running on adrenaline though. I, I was, yeah, I right. was. And I was fairly new to presenting at the time as well, so it was very overwhelming. I was extremely nervous. Um, but I got out there alive and, uh, and lived to tell the story. Did you mention in your speech, hey, by the way, I, I just came from my, my daughter's birth? I didn't, but um, one of the other presenters did, did mention, mention it. it. Every, everyone <laughs> applauded. And, uh, oh, that's why yeah. it was so bad. Oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And then, Adam, I think you got um, some news items to talk about. Yeah, so actually this morning I just came from uh, came from an event. It was the Urban Land Institute and Price Waterhouse Coopers did their emerging trends in real estate. So they 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 poll the market at large for how they feel about the upcoming year. It's a very uh, you know detailed presentation. I've just got a couple of points. I kind of you know made some notes on what I found interesting, and I'll you know throw it out to the two of you. And if you got uh, you know your thoughts on it, would be appreciated. So in terms of the market and their their expectation of next year being a profitable year, 74% expected profitability. They didn't actually include last year's number, but I gotta think that if 25% of the market is not expecting profitability, that it could be a factor from Alberta or any of the markets that are, are lagging behind. Um, and even within the 25%, 1% tick the box for abysmal. So they've got very low expectations of uh, of the next so year. So who, sorry, who's filling this out? Who's the, who's the survey of? It's, it's thousands of people. I know it's quite large. Okay. Um, it would be, I guess, all market participants. And uh, these numbers are specific to Canada. They did uh, a single word description of the market. Uh, number one was competitive, which is no surprise. Everybody in every asset class says there is no product on the market. Uh, number two was cautious. And the third was overheated. I thought out of those three is the most uh, most compelling. You know, there are arguments that you can see some signs of overheating in you know, several asset classes. Yeah, I think like two two percent cap rates make sense to me. It's of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's room for growth. Uh, here's one that relates specifically to what Aaron and I do every day: underwriting criteria for debt. This year, thirty percent of people that spend their time uh, underwriting debt will be more rigorous. In their in their um, parameters than they were in 2016, I would almost say that I would hope that the number would be higher. I, I know that I can speak for First National and say that we've definitely started looking a lot more uh, uh, stress testing and and including that in our in our under underwriting. Yeah, you know, my comment to that was really curious, and it goes back to that word competitive. I mean, because the market's so competitive, no matter what the asset class is, you know, it used to be, you know, if someone was buying something at a five cap, let's say, and and um, or whatever the whatever the, the variable was, you kind of had this sense, okay, well, that must be market value. I mean, you kind of always use this. The market value is what you know an, a non arms length or sorry, an arms length individual is willing to pay for that asset, and you kind of use that as your barometer. So if the guy's buying at a five cap or at two hundred and fifty per unit in an apartment building. Kind of that's that's market, and so I will lend to you know a certain threshold of that, whether it's seventy percent or whatever. And, and you, you now you almost have to say, well, wait a minute, is that really market? I mean, is this guy 
is he just so fed up losing on bids that he's just gone in there and said, you know, I, I don't care what it costs. I'm buying this asset. And he's really buying it 15, 20, 25, 30 percent above what it's truly worth. And how do you really get a sense for that? You know, what were the bids for that property? Were everyone bidding at five million and he just came in there with eight million? And so is it really worth eight million or is, you know, it's five? And it's so you start asking these questions, questions that probably historically weren't really top of mind. I and mean, maybe you might think of every once in a while, but now you really have to be a bit more cautious that is what this individual paying for this building truly what it's worth. But yeah. I, that's, that's curious. And, and, you know, so I guess to that point, we are certainly being more, more cautious in our underwriting. There was, there was also an equity component, but I didn't get a chance to write that down. But I like to see how their, what their yield expectations are. I know a lot of people um, maybe aren't yield-driven in their decisions. It's stability-driven. They need to place capital. So that can uh, you know, affect, uh, affect decision-making as well. I know I've spoken to people in the past, and you say, well, is this market, uh, is this, or sorry, is this transaction market rate? And they'll say, well, by the very fact that I'm buying it at that price makes it market, but you can't justify this purchase by this purchase. Well, and you know, we see that in Vancouver more more predominantly than anywhere else, you know, just because of, and I think a lot of it is is foreign investment where, um, you know, we're, we're seeing just astronomical purchase prices for, for land or for, you know, um, any kind of complex. And it's, and you have to really say, okay, wait a minute, like, you know, and especially out there when cap rates are, we joke at 2% cap rates, but you certainly, we've seen things with the two handle on it. We see purchases with the two handle on it. Uh, and, you know, at a two handle, when the interest rate's 3.5% or whatever it may be, um, one, that's sort of almost negative yield if you use that sort of simple straight line comparison. Uh, and two, you, you can't finance it at more than 40% of acquisition price. It means these guys are putting in 60% of, of their own equity on something like this. Where, you know, it, it makes no sense economically why they're doing it. And, and so you just have to start, you know, really challenging yourself if it's a good, if it's a good deal or not, right? In terms of development issues, you know, what developers saw as an issue uh, that might hinder their growth next year, the second biggest concern was capital availability. And that one shocked me because I know that on the debt side, I would say that there's... It's incredibly liquid. Yeah. yeah. In the same way that people are saying there's, you know, there's no product, I mean, you know, people are turning to, to building more and more. So the equity's got to be there as well. So I was really surprised to hear that. I don't know if it's an early early sign of something that these uh, these market participants are seeing that, you know, we haven't, uh, you know, really seen yet. But uh, I was really shocked to see that as the second biggest concern. If anything, there's an oversupply of capital. I guess it depends on where these responses are coming from. If they're coming from Alberta, perhaps yeah, there's true. a hesitation there. So uh, I, would, I would imagine it reflects the whole country, though. Yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty broad uh, pretty broad spectrum that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, also we you know, we do we do quite a bit in you know major markets. If you're in a secondary market and you you're trying to develop there, it could be tougher to get capital. The following slide right after that actually measured capital supply, and there they stated the equity was more oversupplied than debt. It indicated that both were oversupplied, but equity in particular. So it kind of relates back to the last question of. How's avail- how capital availability a big concern? Um, you know, one of the slides we did not cover in our discussion was we just had a record-setting year for commercial uh, transactions, uh, a, a large jump up as well. So I don't know what would happen in between the, the third quarter of, of 2016, where we're having record-setting years, that 2017 all of a sudden capital is not there. I mean, there'd have to be some sort of major market movement between you know, now and Christmas in order to, uh, to actually affect that. The uh, preferred asset classes is probably probably no uh, no shocker. Uh, number one was industrial, specifically 
distribution. It just represents the shift away from uh, retail. And of course, retail was last in the lineup. So it does it does reflect, uh, you know, this market shift everybody is aware of and tracking. You know, all. It's a lot of turmoil in the retail market right now, right? Yeah. A lot of un- unpredictable uh, circumstances, scenarios that you just read. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. Uh, multifamily was second, which again is not surprising. It's a very stable asset class. You know, as we just spent the last 40 minutes discussing, it will continue to be a strong contender. Uh, Marks to watch. The interesting one for me was Calgary for 2013, 2014, 2015 was number one and is currently number nine, which was the bottom of the list. So it was complete inversion, just, uh, you know, the, the, the boom bust cycle that uh, they've grown accustomed to. But it does relate to the next point. I was shocked by this one. So top trends to watch in real estate was our real estate cycles moderating. I'm sure markets like Alberta would not mind if they took a little off of their their peak and if they could not have such intense uh, troughs. But it's just it's just an assumption amongst everybody that works in real estate that we're going to have ten amazing years and that everybody's going to go broke. You know, the the last the last cycle obviously has been longer than that. But you it's almost to, twenty years now. Yeah, but you speak to somebody who's been in real estate, you know, for fifty years, and they just, just assumed like. We're going to have a 10-year party, and then we're going to have a one-year hangover, and we'll start from scratch. Uh, I think it would be you know, great for the industry to have a more a more moderate effect on the, the swings. It will attract more institutional capital who's not necessarily in for uh, roller coaster rides. And maybe that is a fact that you know the real estate has become a lot more professional and uh, structured in the last uh, you know ten years. Less Indian and cowboys, and you know a bit more institutional, certainly. But I don't know if that still indicates that there is no you know downturn coming. I, I guess I who knows. Do you have any any thoughts on that, Sean? Well, I mean we're we're seeing twenty percent plus growth in housing prices in the GTA. You know, talking about the last twenty year cycle, we've never seen price growth like that. So is it sustainable? No. Right. But what happens next is a very difficult call. We're dealing with a very undersupplied marketplace. So if there's no supply, how do prices fall if nobody's willing to sell? But will prices continue to grow by 20%? No, definitely not. I sure hope not. I mean, it's just unsustainable. Well, it gets to a point where affordability on its own, just from pure price increase, has deteriorated so much that buyers just start to back off. And it actually was something that we were already starting to see in Vancouver. And I think it's something that we're going to start to see pretty soon in Toronto. Uh, Even without uh, government intervention, the market will self-adjust. And what that correction looks like, um, I think is going to relate largely to buyer psychology. Buyer psychology has been huge in this market cycle. People thinking about getting in before it's too late. How many have rushed in? How much demand have we been pulling forward from the future? And what's going to happen when um, when that demand's not there? So we're going to obviously have to rely on stable economic conditions. But uh, I mean, 20% year-over-year growth, it's, it's, it's not going to continue. Yeah, the, the pendulum swing at some point is going to be uh, going to be ugly. That is everything from my notes anyway. As I said, there was a whole lot more presented there. It was a, it was a very interesting presentation. If anybody got, has any comments on anything we might have interpreted here, I'd love to hear them. Uh, I also want to thank our guest. The As we said, the presentation will go up on the website. We covered a lot of it today, but there's still a lot more in there that's worth reading if you're involved at all in any way in this market. So thanks again, Sean, for coming in. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, for providing the report. Um, we'll put it on crepodcast.com slash eight. That's the, the shorter URL. If you're driving right now and don't want to remember the, the long form, that will uh, get you the page where you can uh, take a look at it. Thank you for the listeners, as always. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in iTunes, um, subscribe on Google Play, tell a friend who's in the industry that it's, you know, if it's, it's worth checking out, if you think it's worth checking out. 
And we look forward, uh, look forward to the next one. Yeah, thanks, John. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.